0: Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Yard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. Episode 25 of the podcast introduced the Unitary Patent, UP, and Unified Patent Court, UPC, which could bring centralised patent protection to Europe in late 2022 or early 2023. In this episode, partners and patent attorneys Kate Hickinson and Julia Gwilt discuss possible scenarios relating to how the UPC might work in practice, including considering the pros and cons of using this new court for infringement and invalidity actions. Kate and
1: Julia, over to you. Thank you Lucy for that great introduction. Today I think the intention is to, to talk through some scenarios to try and bring the particularly the new Unified Patent Court to life, but I think it's useful before we get started in the scenarios to think about and just have a brief recap of what, Kate, you discussed in the last podcast on the UP, UPC, which was a few months ago now. So, Kate, can you just remind me what what you chatted about with our colleague, Chris?
2: So, in the last podcast, we discussed the the UP or the Unitary Patent and the UPC and the Unified Patent Court. We talked about what the UP and the UPC is and a bit of the history that's got us to, to where we are now. So, in that podcast, we said that we thought that the UP and the UPC would go live on the 1st of October 2022, or at least that that was the intended date. Things have moved on since then, and now it's looking like it's more likely to be the end of 2022 or even early 2023.
1: That means our clients and our contacts have got a little bit more time to think about getting ready for the UPC. And in particular, it's that sunrise period, isn't it, that we're all thinking about? Can you just remind me about? the sunrise period and why that important?
2: Okay, so the sunrise period is a period in which the patentees can opt out their European patents in the UPC states and the jurisdiction of the UPC. The opt-outs will apply to existing European patents, so that's why our clients need to start thinking about this now. And it'll also apply to European patents that are, are granted during the transition period. At the moment, we have a seven year transition period, which will allow people to opt out of the jurisdiction of the the UPC. It may well be extended by another seven years so that in total it's 14 years. And this will just enable people to get used to the UPC and decide during that time whether they want their European patents to be under the jurisdiction of the UPC. So if once this is live, a patentee chooses a unitary patent, then that patent will be within the jurisdiction of the UPC. If they have a granted European patent that is validated in a UP contracting state, then they'll be able to choose whether they are under the jurisdiction of the UPC or the national court unless they opt out from the jurisdiction of the UPC. And in that case, they will be under the jurisdiction of the National Courts. So during transition, we've
1: got a choice of two jurisdictions, both for revocation and infringement actions. We can choose to go via the National Courts or via the UPC for those classically validated European patents. Is that the case? Yes, it is. Should we talk through some scenarios and I know we've got clients and contacts asking us about how
2: best to to
1: go ahead with their cases.
2: So a first scenario that I've thought about is if you have a company we'll call them company A which has a European patent which has been validated and is in force in a a bunch of UPC states but also the UK. Um, As we discussed in our previous podcast, the UK won't be a part of the the UP or the UPC since we're no longer part of the EU. So company B comes along and infringes the patent. So by importing and selling into all of the countries where the patent belonging to company A has been validated, and A wants to start an infringement action against company B. And there's different ways in which they, they might do this. So Julia, if company A has not opted out of the UPC and we're in the transition period, what do you think the choice that they would have then would be? So if we start with the UK first, because
1: that's perhaps the easiest and useful for us to understand, the UK isn't part of the UPC, is it? So we'd have to go to the UK national courts to take any infringement action there. But then for those other states, this is where it's a little bit more complicated, isn't it? And we've got a choice. You could go via the national courts or you could go to the UPC, which would have jurisdiction, as I understand it, over all of those UPC states. And that seems to me to be the most beneficial route. Can you think of a reason why you might not go down that route?
2: I agree in terms of the infringement action. So it would just be one single action for for multiple states. The risk that we have by choosing that route is that there's a risk of central revocation of the patent. And as yet, we're not quite sure how the UPC is going to behave and how the actions will be dealt with. Um, so there's a lot of uncertainty, but but that's the main risk that I see by taking that route.
1: but also, as I understand it, so the UPC, the unified Patent Court isn't a single court, is it? there's There's different, for want of a better word, branches, aren't there? this this central division and the the national division. So do you think there's any forum shopping? to be had before the Unified Patent Court?
2: Yeah, I think there definitely is. And I think the rules as to where you can and can't take action are are quite complex. And there'll be a lot of lawyers looking at where the best courts are to take actions. I was actually at a conference last week in Germany, where there were some German judges discussing the, the UPC and how the courts might deal with different actions as well and um, it just seems that there's an awful lot of uncertainty at the moment as to exactly what law is going to be applied and how it's going to be applied and what, what the likely outcomes of, of these courts are.
1: No I agree and and I guess in some ways that's similar or maybe not similar but we have forum shopping don't we with the national courts and, and certainly some countries are preferred when taking infringement actions for example Germany perhaps or or, or the UK but the other thing we talked about is you could you could opt out the patent now it doesn't seem to be that useful in this situation to to opt it out but I know a lot of companies are are thinking well the easiest thing when we get to the sunrise period and, and transition is let's just opt everything out because that's an easy decision to make what would be the consequences of them opting out here
2: So if they were opted out then they would have to take infringement action in all of the national courts where they wanted to take action but obviously then they wouldn't have the the risk of the central revocation. But
1: is that opt-out final? Can they do anything about that opt-out?
2: Yes they can. So if they have opted out the patent and then they they find themselves in a situation such as the one that we're discussing and they want to take infringement action and actually would like to use the UPC, they are able to withdraw their opt-out, which would then um, open up the opportunity for using the UPC again. They can't then opt-out again and withdraw the opt-out. My understanding is that you can withdraw your opt-out once and you can't just keep changing your mind and, and going in and out of the jurisdiction of the UPC.
1: Is there any way that Company B can take advantage of the situation here or try and thwart Company A's plans to to do that multi-jurisdictional
2: action? So if Company A had opted out of the jurisdiction of the UPC, if B filed an action to revoke the patent in, say, the German or UK courts, which might be the most likely courts in this case, then the company A then can't withdraw their opt-out and they would have to take action via the national courts. And as you just said, they they would have a choice of of where they might take that action. But I, I guess one of the
1: drawbacks with the national courts is that no single infringement in a country is maybe monetarily worth taking action, whereas if you're combining Germany, France and all the other jurisdictions and thinking about the value of that infringement, it might then suddenly be worth taking that that action at the UPC because there's more money at stake, isn't there? So, opting out does carry some risk, doesn't it?
2: Yes. And I suppose that the the hope is that the UPC will encourage people to take infringement actions where maybe they wouldn't have before where they had to do it nationally because you say you're getting all the countries or you know a a large number of countries in in the one action so it'd be really interesting I think to see if if that does change things.
1: So if we flip it around now and consider another scenario where instead of being the patentee we're the potential infringer I guess that also has an impact on um, freedom to operate opinions that we might be issuing and also thinking about the strategy. So, for example, if we think of another company which has a new product, which it plans to sell into the European jurisdiction, so various countries throughout Europe, and they've done a a freedom to operate and found a European patent that they, they think they could infringe. And then they check the validations and see it's validated in the UK and a bunch of UPC states. I wonder, is there anything that they need to be thinking about?
2: Well, obviously, the first thing to check would be whether we're within the opposition period. Um, I think if we think about this scenario in a way in which then they're not in the opposition period, so the only options are revocation actions. So if the patent that they've identified hasn't been opted out of the jurisdiction of the UPC, then for those states that are members of the UPC, they could take revocation action in the national courts or the UPC. Obviously, for the UK, because it's not part of this new system, then they would have to take action nationally. I'd imagine in this um, scenario, it would probably be best for them to to try and take revocation action at the UPC for all of the UPC states first and see how that went before they took action in the UK, I think it'd be interesting to see in these sort of situations whether people then bother to take action in the UK or whether they just think, well, if, if the patent's invalidated by the UPC and all the other states, that the UK patent is, is pretty much worthless.
1: No, I, I agree because I know there's been some discussion about whether or not the Unified Patent Court even has a sort of long arm reach. I think is the is the term being referred mm-hmm. to, and and could be issuing an opinion which is somehow effective in the UK. But even if it doesn't have that, and I would hope, perhaps it doesn't, because the UK is outside the system. As you say, the implication being that if the reasons, I guess, if the reasons for the invalidation apply in the UK, then then The UK part of that European patent looks like it's likely to be invalid as well. It it might be that perhaps there's a national prior art or something that doesn't invalidate the UK part in the same way. But yeah, I I would say you're definitely on the back foot then as the patentee, aren't you, with a, a patent which has had a ruling that it's invalid before the UPC. Um, before you take an action at the UK IPO, but as you say, we we just don't know how this is going to pan out. It's one of the fun parts of this seat to see how it all all fits together in the future.
2: Yeah, it's certainly going to be very interesting to see how it how it all works, at least in the first few years. If the patentee had actually opted out of the jurisdiction of the UPC, then the first thing to do would be to check that the opt out is actually valid. That's a whole other issue with these sort of situations that I think we we need to be looking at for our clients.
1: And what do you mean by valid? What, what things could they have got wrong when they filed the opt-out that you might be able to
2: challenge? The main issue with the opt-outs is that the tree owner has to opt-out and that isn't necessarily going to be the same as the owner that's registered say on the the EPO on the EPO register so that's something that's going to need to be checked we're obviously talking to our clients when we're looking at opting out their patents and making sure that we know who the true owner is but if you're in the situation where a patent's being opted out but you'd like to take an action at the UPC then I think that that's the main check and also if there's more than one owner then all of the owners need to have have filed the opt-out
1: I think because we talked a lot about revocation and I guess as the potential infringer you might want to try and sort of seize the initiative if they have opted out because once they've opted out until they withdraw that opt out they cannot take a UPC infringement action which would have effect in all of the countries so I wonder and I think this is a a question that we we're starting to see from certain parties is is there any way of of taking control of the infringement action and blocking the the patentee from taking that UPC action, which would have have effect in lots of states. And we've talked here about revocation, but I wonder if while it's opted out, if we filed a a declaration for non-infringement in a national court which permits you to do that, whether that would then block the opt-out in the same way that we were talking about blocking the withdrawal of the opt-out in relation to the the previous scenario. What do you think?
2: That's a really interesting scenario. I'm not sure that I know quite how that's going to all work out at the moment and whether that action would achieve the desired effect. As far as we understand it, it's, if you've opted out, an action
1: before the national courts can block your withdrawal of the opt-out. But what's not clear is what nature of action blocks the withdrawal isn't it i think that's clear and that's going to be decided as the courts get into actions and and make decisions and so we kind of have to watch this space don't we on that one it's a difficult one
2: until the courts are active and start hearing different actions it's hard to know in some circumstances quite how things are going to to work out i think in the in this scenario if the patent had been opted out and we had to file, the company that wanted to revoke the patent had to file national revocations. Obviously, they have a choice, as they do now, as to where they might might file those actions. And perhaps they'd choose the, the country where the infringement is most likely to to start.
1: Yes, that's true. So it's forum shopping for the revocations as well as forum shopping for the infringements, isn't it? I think the important point to remember is that both the infringer and the patentee have a choice of jurisdiction unless there's an opt-out and then if there is an opt-out there's potential for blocking the withdrawal of that opt-out so that needs to be taken into consideration when opting all the IP out isn't it a blanket decision to opt everything out might not be the right answer for the patentee might it
2: I think it'd be interesting as well to see whether companies in different technical areas take different views on this, I think I have heard some people suggesting that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies won't want to be involved because, obviously, you know their their patents are protecting products that are worth such a lot of money, and that maybe the uncertainty is just too much. But then I've also heard, you know, the other side of that that actually some of the pharmaceutical companies want to be involved. Um, It'd be interesting to see whether the way that the courts evolve and the way that the case law evolves is determined by the sorts of cases that they're seeing. It'd be really nice to think that they see a real variety of cases from a variety of different companies and, and you know technical areas. You would imagine that that would help things to evolve in the right way. Last week, I think you were in Munich, weren't you, for a, for an
1: appeal hearing on an opposition and got into a discussion about the, the best way of obtaining a revocation of, of a European patent, whether it's opposition or now through the new central revocation, which is offered to us via the UPC. Was there anything interesting that came out when you were talking with a client at that appeal hearing or just in the thoughts afterwards?
2: I think when we've been talking through some of these scenarios, we've been talking about revocation actions at national courts or patent offices. But obviously, as European patent attorneys, we spend a lot more time dealing with oppositions filed at the the European Patent Office. And when I look at some of these scenarios, if we're still in the opposition period, I would imagine that the people that want to get the patent revoked would file an opposition, because obviously that covers you know, all the EPC contracting states, whereas although the UPC is going to have jurisdiction over quite a lot of those states, it's not going to be all of them, including the UK. So, but in the appeal hearing last week, we were the patentee and the opponent didn't manage to get our patent revoked fully and there were several independent claims. So there was one claim that I think was causing the most issue for the opponent. But the way in which the appeal hearing was conducted meant that the opponent wasn't actually allowed to make all of the arguments that they would have liked because they hadn't put those into their case when they filed their grounds of appeal. So it occurred to me in that situation that they might have had some decent arguments potentially against the the claim in particular that they they wanted deleted or further arguments that they could have used to try and revoke the whole patent. But because of the, the strict nature of the appeal proceedings at the EPO, those arguments weren't heard. So that was a circumstance where I thought actually, maybe if that patent was then under the jurisdiction of the UPC, they might try and revoke it using the UPC and get a, a central revocation of the patent. So that could be a circumstance in which somebody might might use the UPC for a revocation action, even though they have opposed and been through the opposition and appeal proceedings at the EPO. What's your feeling on that, Julia, in terms of you know when people would use the UPC for a revocation action rather than or as well as the EPO opposition procedure? It's an interesting one, isn't it?
1: Because obviously the, the the main downside to the opposition is the limited time out after grant in which it's available. So it's only for nine months after grant. So if you miss that window, then revocation is your only option. But of course, the the, the cost of a revocation in terms of fees is significantly greater than the cost of an opposition in terms of fees. And the preparation in terms of preparing the arguments, preparing the prior art is probably going to be quite similar because the way I see it, the revocation actions have been set up to very closely mimic the opposition um, proceedings before the EPO, at least in terms of the substantive arguments that you can make. And so that there is a lot of overlap and certainly there are provisions for staying the revocation action if opposition proceedings are, are going on. But I, I agree, if you're in that nine-month window, opposition seems the sensible way forward because it's all states and not just the UPC states that it has effect for. But outside of that, and and bearing in mind, as, as you saw in your appeal hearing, that the way appeals are handled has been very tightly controlled in the last few months and years. They've They've been trying to to limit the arguments and new documents that can go in into the appeal process I agree that the if you've not had that opportunity for procedural reasons to make all the arguments and use all the prior art that you wish to do in the opposition appeal then perhaps the revocation action opens up a new possibility even though it's costly there may be a cost benefit and certainly it'd be interesting to see how that one develops as well.
2: Yeah, I think it just makes it, although it is costly, it's not obviously not as costly as as taking national actions in in all of the different states.
1: Yeah, I think for me, actually, one of the important points to take home is that a blanket opt-out seems like the easy option, but there are, as we talked about, some risks. So I think everyone needs to make sure they think carefully about how they handle the sunrise period.
2: I agree. I think it needs really careful thought and by hopefully thinking about some of the scenarios that we've discussed today and perhaps thinking up other scenarios that you might find yourself in or our clients might find themselves in, it it helps to understand how things are going to work under the, the UPC and that hopefully will help clients to make decisions on how to deal with their patent portfolios going forward thanks Kate I, I really enjoyed our, our
1: discussion thanks for helping answer all those questions that I had
2: thanks Julia and hopefully this is helpful to any of our listeners who are thinking about the UP and the UPC
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the Green Shoots podcast by Apple Yardlees if you have a question or topic suggestion please email us at ip at appleyardlees.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at, at Appleyardleys.